0: So it has this property where we can add different proteins on top of the liposome, and then we can treat it as a Trojan horse, and it'll then package drugs inside the liposome. We can inject it into the bloodstream, and theoretically, it would cross the blood-brain barrier, and then it would attach to a receptor on the surface of brain cancer cells and directly deliver the chemotherapy or targeted therapies to these cells.
1: Hi, I'm Dr. Rosie Sender. Welcome to The Medical Matrix. Today's episode is going to be on nanotechnology and medicine. My co-host today is Dr. Erica Fisk. Erica is a board-certified orthopedic surgeon, and she is specialized in foot and ankle surgery, Harvard-trained, and she is my favorite person to operate with. Our guest today is Dr. Fred Lamb. Fred is a surgeon scientist in the Division of Neurosurgery at McMaster University. He received his MD-PhD training in neuroscience at the University of British Columbia and completed his neurosurgery residency at the University of Alberta. Afterwards, he moved to Boston to pursue subspecialty training at Harvard Medical School, and then took a deep dive into basic science and translational research as a postdoctoral fellow at MIT. It was at MIT that Fred had the opportunity to learn about nanotechnology and its potential uses for the treatment of brain cancer. He believes the... Converging innovative research with clinical medicine will lead to new and disruptive treatments that will improve the health and well being of his patients and the general public. Welcome, Fred. Thanks,
0: Rosie. Hey, Erica.
1: <laughs> Fred is also a longtime BFF of mine. We know each other from medical school after he also dumped my vegetable stock down the sink.
0: <laughs> I thought it was dishwater.
1: <laughs> so basically, back in the day, I was way more sober. Dr. Great friendship. Yeah. So I had all these different groups of friends. Like I had these med school friends, university friends, and all these other people I used to hang out with that were artists, musicians, like actors. Even neurosurgeons.
0: Oh, neither of us knew that I was going to be a neurosurgeon.
1: And I liked bringing all these different groups of people together because I thought it was just way more interesting. And so then I had a dinner party one night. I had just met Fred maybe like two weeks earlier. And I said, oh, why don't you come on over and meet some of my other friends? So, I was cooking that night, and one of the dishes required a vegetable stock. So, I was making it from scratch, too, right? So, ambitious. I'm, I know. <laughs> I, I, I'm an overachiever. What can you say, right? These Canadian medical schools don't sound like that. Right? <laughs> <laughs>
0: <Yes. laughs> and
1: and uh, so, anyway, Fred comes over, and instead of like joining everybody in the living room, everybody else was there hanging out. He goes to the kitchen to do whatever surveillance he had to do. And then all I hear is, what is this crap? And uh, like, I didn't know if your
0: food was safe. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Exactly, and so then he threw it down the sink, and I'm like, "Oh my god!" Because that had been cooking for a while.
0: No, well, I, I tend to take control in the kitchen. That's just the way I am. Typical
2: yeah. neurosurgeon. Exactly. You didn't know you're going to be a neurosurgeon this, Like <laughs> is like, yeah, There yeah. are signs.
1: Yeah. In the I universe. Until I, I threw her
0: stock down the sink. Yeah, but yeah. you forgave me, and we became good friends, right?
1: I know. Well, because well, this was a thing when when it happened. I was like, "Wow, that's so brazen!" But at the same time, I was like. I thought this is pretty funny and ridiculous that someone you just met has the confidence to come into your kitchen and like make an executive decision like that. So I was like, Fred's a very different kind of guy. We're going to be friends for sure. (laughs) Right. So, but of course, like Fred was really apologetic about it. So he wasn't a jerk. So, of course, that's why we became friends and stuff. But I did offer (laughs) to
0: remake the stock. Yeah.
1: I would have held him up to that. Yeah. No, actually, I think I sent one of the other guys to the grocery store again. (laughs) So, anyway. Onto the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so, we're going to talk about nanotechnology and medicine. And, you know, Fred has done some basic science work in this field. So, I asked him to join us and help us understand a little bit more about the use of nanotechnology. But before I do that, I thought it would be a good idea just to talk about nanotechnology in general. And so, actually, the whole concept of nanotechnology goes back decades. Richard Feynman, who was a very well-known American theoretical physicist at Caltech and Nobel laureate, actually first gave a lecture in 1959, and the lecture was titled, There is Plenty of Room at the Bottom, and it was an invitation to enter a new field of physics. At that time, he was considering the direct manipulation of individual atoms in the world of synthetic chemistry. So he was already presenting the idea of what we now know as nanotechnology. And so what is nanotechnology? Well, it's any tech that on a nanoscale has an application in the real world. So it's the science of building very small. And a nano means actually a billionth of a meter, So which is almost inconceivable to understand how small that is. If we think about some real world examples, like a a tip of a pen is about a million nanometers wide. A single sheet of paper is 75,000 nanometers thick. And a strand of our hair is about 50,000 nanometers thick. And a DNA strand is two nanometers thick. Nanotechnology is already around us. Some examples that I can give are, for example, there are clear nanoscale films on glasses to make them scratch resistant, water resistant or anti-reflective. Vehicles are increasingly made of lightweight materials that contain nanotechnology. We have been shrinking computer chips to increase their memory. And so we're using smaller and more portable products. There are flexible, bendable, foldable electronics using semiconductors, and they have thicknesses of just a few hundred nanometers. Everything in the world is made up of atoms and how these different atoms are arranged determine pretty much what anything around you does. With nanotechnology, it's possible to manipulate and take advantage of this. And so when we start talking about nanotechnology, though, science has very different rules, right? As you get smaller and smaller, a material's physical and chemical properties will change dramatically, and so when you when you know how to start playing this game, you can design new materials and you can manipulate their properties and train them to behave the way we want them to. So at this point, I was going to just hand it over to Fred to, you know, talk a little bit about the properties of nanotechnology.
0: Sure. So, you know, I think you really described it very nicely, Rosie. When we think, when we talk about nanotechnology, it's really anything that is it's all about scale like you said it's anything that's less than a thousand nanometers so if we talk about 1 millimeter and we all know about the millimeter 1 millimeter one order down is a thousand microns or a thousand micrometers and one thousand nanometers is one micrometer so if you look at anything that we in the broad description of nanotechnology is anything that is smaller than you know a thousand nanometers that can like you said self assemble has its, it has properties that we can program and you know use in different types of applications. For example, like the th- the anti scratch coating on glass is basically assembly of different atoms and molecules that then become this nano layer of protection. And you know you see this in nature, and a lot of a lot of what bioengineers do is take from nature and then replicate that in applications that you can use. And, you know, so when we talk about the ability to develop nanotechnology, it's using the properties of the way atoms can assemble into functional units. And that can then be applied to different things. And in, in my interest, where I'm interested in, you know, delivering medicines to cancer patients, we can then, you know, package medicines into these literally little small nanometer, small carriers that can go anywhere in the body, theoretically, and target any organ we want and achieve an effect. And, and that in itself is what we can say is the effects of nanoscale materials.
2: How did you get interested in this subject? How did you get to MIT studying nanobots?
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, so during, during my PhD, I studied Alzheimer's disease, which is degenerative disease of the brain that leads to loss of memory and i studied delivery of certain drugs that can again cross the bloodstream into the brain and hopefully save neurons from dying so already i was very interested in neurosciences and when i was in boston i was very fortunate enough to do further research at mit and i was being i was able to get collaborative with the bioengineers at mit and by then i was also very interested in figuring out how we can overcome challenges in delivering cancer therapies to patients with brain tumors. And the brain t- the brain is a very specific organ in the body because there's a very elaborate network of blood vessels called the blood-brain barrier that prevents about 90% of known medicines that are used to treat cancer patients from entering the brain because we don't want these medicines to cause bad side effects. So I was mentored by Dr. Paula Hammond who is the head of chemical engineering at MIT and her lab specializes in making nanoparticles that can act as trojan horses that can deliver therapies to different organs in the brain and I was very fortunate enough to collaborate with her lab and design a nanoparticle that can actually cross the blood brain barrier and then home like a like a like a stud missile directly to the brain tumor cells and deliver medicines and therapies and that's kind of how I I became familiar with the field of nanotechnology. And of course, at MIT, there's Dr. Bob Langer, who is also you know, affectionately known as the godfather of nanotechnology. Uh, and he discovered a nanoscale material that can be implanted into the brain cavities uh, following neurosurgery of patients with brain tumors. And this biodegradable wafer that has nanotechnology coated on it will then release drugs into the cavity and allow the, the remaining tumor cells that the surgeons could not remove to be killed and melt away. So that was, you know, that always really fascinated me and, you know, really good happenstance for me to let MIT to be able to study this.
1: So what, what kind of nanoparticles were you using to deliver the chemo drugs across the blood-brain barrier? What was special about this particle that was able to cross the blood-brain barrier?
0: So the nanoparticles that I was using was a very basic structure called liposome. And liposomes is made out of fat molecules and they self-assemble. It's, it's like when you drop oil into water and the oil forms droplets because they're repelled by the water and they form these little small droplets. Liposomes are such that, you know, they can, you can use these fat layers. You can form a fat layer and then you can, you can impregnate it or you can add drugs to it and then it'll form these little Liposomes and you can, you can shape the liposomes to all the different sizes. And in my situation, we wanted something that was small enough to cross the blood brain barrier. So less than a hundred nanometers in size. And what Dr. Hammond's lab was also able to do was they were able to stick different proteins on the top of these liposomes, kind of like Nerf balls. You know how Nerf balls have that Velcro effect and you can stick it onto a surface and it just attaches to it. So it, it, has this property where we can add different proteins on top of the liposome and then we can we can treat it as a Trojan horse and it will then package drugs inside the liposome we can inject it into the bloodstream and theoretically it would cross the blood brain barrier and then it would attach to a receptor on the surface of brain cancer cells and directly deliver the chemotherapy or targeted therapies to these cells and then avoid affecting healthy neurons and killing the nearby healthy cells of the brain, which is one of the really bad side effects of giving a patient chemotherapy. Not only does it kill the cancer cells, it also kills the healthy cells, you know, which is why people lose their hair, they get really sick. So you know, one theoretical advantage of using nanoparticles is that you can deliver targeted therapy and in a stealth manner avoid causing toxicity to the rest of the body. And that's, that's what my, my research was based on.
1: What were the receptors that you were targeting on the cancer cell? So
0: there's, there are several receptors that are overexpressed or known to be expressed at a higher level on cancer cells. And one receptor that we discovered and other people have also looked at is called the transferrin receptor. And the transferrin receptor is not only expressed in cancer cells, it's also, you know, for example, highly expressed in the liver. And so we were able to stick transparent protein molecules on the surface of our nanoparticles and then using a mechanism that cells already do to transport these liposomes into across their cell membrane, we were able to hijack the system in a Trojan horse manner to then attach the transparent liposomes to the brain cancer cells and then deliver the toxic chemotherapy. And we can very nicely show that in a mouse model of brain cancer.
2: Is anybody using this right now, or is this still kind of in the research phase? It seems like a head would have a huge application to be able to target.
0: Yeah, so there are there are biotech companies that are using this transferrin based liposome technology to deliver chemotherapies to brain cancers, and there's small clinical trials that are ongoing. And actually, one of the new efforts that is now ongoing at MIT is we've we've now established international multi center research program that will further our understanding of using Dr. Hammond's nanoparticle technology from her lab to even develop more sophisticated nanotechnology to to increase the efficacy of delivering these therapies to brain tumors.
2: So if you're going in for a glioma treatment right now, you have the main toxic chemotherapy drugs that are attacking and not cancer-specific And you're getting the same type of basically side effects where you're getting hair loss, possible neuron damage of their healthy cells and et cetera, of all the the standard chemotherapy drugs. That's still the mainstream gold standard of care right now.
0: Yeah, that is the gold standard. You know, know, unfortunately, the other thing is, especially for the treatment of glioma and glioblastoma is the most aggressive and most common primary tumor of the brain in adults. And, you know, John McCain passed away from uh, glioblastoma you know, many notable figures. So even Joe Biden's son, Vice President Joe Biden. So, you know, we're using a, a, a chemotherapy called chemozolamide, which is very old. It's been around for decades. And for lack of a better treatment that's out there, we're still, you know, we're still forced to use this. But in our research, or Dr. Hammond's lab, what we were able to show was that when we packaged chemozolamide in this targeted transparent liposome, we were able to protect mice from the systemic toxic effects of the temozolomide, So it added protection from the toxicity. And also it was more effective at shrinking brain tumors when we delivered the temozolomide in these liposomes compared to when we gave the mice just regular drug. See, that's
2: just fascinating. Rosie and I looked at it like, wow, this is like so cool because it's not really you're changing any of the, the chemotherapy drugs necessarily, you're just changing the delivery system. And just was that- They're Making it
0: safer.
1: You're making it safer.
0: Yeah. And more targeted.
1: I think that's the exciting thing about nanotechnology, that you even the treatments that we have, you know, some of them are very good treatments and they work, but we can make them more effective and we can manipulate them enough that we can have less side effects. And I think that's just one of the amazing sort of byproducts of, of this technology. Currently, you know, the trials have been in mice. Is is do you think that it's anywhere close to human clinical trials? Or is that still a little bit far off?
0: There are some companies that are running human clinical trials at a small scale. Yeah, at small scale. And, you know, we're waiting on the results to be released. But, you know, again, it's in the private biosector field. And that's, that's you know, one of the discussions, you know, in terms of, you know, how openly available is this technology to really affect change at a mass level? Or, or are these little small limited trials only going on at a, at a company level? You know, and it may take years to to make that available to the mass public.
1: It's interesting. So they don't have academic affiliations. These are privately, fully privately owned companies or... These are private
0: biotech companies, correct. Fully private companies. Yeah.
1: Do you think any academic institutions would be trying to get involved with this kind of research? I would imagine so.
0: Yes. You know, so like I said, you know, through our our new international collaboration that we have started at MIT, you know, specifically at the Koch Institute for Integrative Cancer Research, where I did my postdoc, you know, hopefully the work that will come out of this collaborative effort is going to then funnel into clinical trials that we can then run at at multi-center hospitals within North America and even in Europe and And kind of like accrue the numbers that we need to show that this is uh, truly an effective way to, a new and effective way and disruptive way to deliver cancer therapies to patients.
2: Do you think the ultimate goal and the possibility for this type of technology for gliomas specifically is for cure? I mean, is this something that can cure glioblastoma?
0: I think it's, we're too early. I think we're too early to say cure. I mean, I th- I, you know, the the I think the problem with any cancer is that by the time a patient gets sick from cancer, and once someone knows that they've been diagnosed with cancer, the size of the cancer and the extent of the cancer ha- is already quite extensive. And, you know, specifically with brain tumors, by the time a patient is diagnosed with a brain tumor, it's usually at the size that's big enough to cause neurological symptoms and therefore to be able to deliver enough nanoparticles to for example the, the tumor that's the size of a golf ball you know which is not uncommon when a patient gets diagnosed with gliomas their their tumors are, are are you know about the size of a golf ball in their brain think about how much nanotechnology and nanoparticles
2: how many nanometers is a golf ball that's a valid question <laughs> <laughs> my hair is 50,000 nanometers i want to know how many a golf ball is because it seems
0: you know, insurmountable. It's, it's pretty big. It's pretty big. Yeah, yeah. So you know, currently the gold standard is to do aggressive surgery to remove as much as we can safely, and then treat with chemozolamide, this this really toxic, non-specific chemotherapy, and then radiate, treat the patients with radiation, and those are all very toxic treatments.
2: Would this be in lieu of radiation, the wafer that has chemotherapy eluding wafer in the resection area? Is that taking the place of a radiation type of treatment postoperatively or intraoperatively? No, it's in addition to No,
0: that. it's in addition. Yeah. So so what Dr. Langer's gliadel, so this is the gliadel wafer, what Dr. Langer's gliadel wafer was able to do is that it was able to directly release drugs right into the surgical cavity. So it it bypasses the blood system, so you don't have to inject chemotherapy into the bloodstream so that it doesn't go everywhere in the body and cause side effects. It just gets a very concentrated dose that's released right into the surgical bed. And then the patient still gets radiation. So it's it's almost like the lesser of two evils. We're going to concentrate the evil drug right into the surgical cavity and then hopefully avoid all the different effects elsewhere. Yeah.
2: I'm going to ask Fred the same question I asked you guys earlier before we started recording. Has Have you ever seen the movie Inner Space? Steven Spielberg, where Dennis Quaid gets... Apparently it was 1987. I'm not that old. <laughs> I watched- <laughs> I watched it later on in life. But I swear, nobody here has seen this. But <laughs> for those of you listeners out there who have seen this movie, I swear, this is what I'm thinking of. You, go- you have to at least go read the trailer, watch the trailer, because... This is it's supposed to be a comedy, but it's a Steven Spielberg with Dennis Quaid and Martin Short. And they basically are doing this experiment where Dennis Quaid gets shrunken in the submarine and injected into Martin Short's bottom <laughs> bum. is, And he goes and he wants to be able to establish this communication with the host. You know, he's supposed to get injected into a rabbit, but he gets injected into Martin Short. And so he gets established as visual and audio but there's this little submarine going through the bloodstream and he's like, please direct me to the middle ear. And he, the submarine goes and they're able to go and manipulate areas of the body. And this, this kind of technology, and I may be way off because I'm just learning about it myself, but it seemed kind of fantastical in that way where you can go in and target these areas where are so specific that no one else has been there before. Uh, and these drugs have not been able to, reach these areas and it's just it's really pretty amazing
1: so hollywood predicted the nanobots
2: <laughs> so, so <what? laughs> yeah like please that. transition to nanobots because i'm very curious about this right
0: so you know like you were saying so that is not it is not just the realm of steven spielberg and hollywood sci-fi it is actually happening you know in real time and a lot of this technology
2: and amazing mm-hmm.
1: I was going to say, yeah. Why don't Why don't you talk to us a little bit about nanobots? Because I'm so fascinated by this. So, from my understanding, these are robots that can be miniaturized, right, to enter the body through, you know, whatever cavity, and then they're controlled by.
0: So, you know, I'm not. So, I'm I'm not an expert in nanobots. I can only go on what you know my colleagues at MIT have been have been you know discovering and what's in the what's in the common domain. But you know, there are so, for example, there's. well they can do they can well i I mean don't you guys watch avengers you know nanobots can you know i mean robert downey jr's you know spider-man's you know suit is all nanobots and can regenerate and heal and you know and that is really not it's not too far from the future you know it's not too far-fetched it's it's now as as fabrication processes become more and more miniaturized you know you can really build these you know nano you know small very very small self-assembling Particles or robots that can be controlled, for example, using magnetism. You know, so I have a colleague who, you know, discovered nanobots that can be controlled by magnets, and then you can you can control the direction of how or where the the nanobots can be, you know, driven to, for example. And so, you know, the the future of being able to, and actually, you know, Richard Feynman, you know, in his essay of, you know, plenty of room at the bottom. It was his grad student, you know, Albert Hibbs, who actually suggested the medical use for these theoretical machines, And, you know, he made that audacity to be able to say that, you know, these machines would one day swallow the surgeon. You know, so the three of us, you know, we could be obsolete, you know, very soon. So... You know, I think I know why you're doing this podcast, Rosie, because you wanna you wanna get out of surgery.
1: Oh, hundred percent. I'm making my backup plans. Are you are you kidding me? I've got all my backup plans in place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: you know, so it's not so far-fetched. And actually it's it's from an ethical perspective. There was a general document that was presented to the United Nations General Assembly, you know, discussing the legal and ethical implications of nanobots and nanorobotics and its use. Not only in healthcare, but you know, in in just general aspects of life, you know. So I don't know if you guys are a GI Joe fan, but you know, I'm definitely a GI Joe fan. You know, so in in GI Joe, you know, Retaliation of Cobra, so there were nanites that were that were released into the environment, and they ate up the they ate up the Eiffel Tower, and they were gonna like destroy the world. So. You know, from an ethical perspective and theoretically, sure, you know, nanotechnology can be weaponized or it can be used for unethical reasons. And so, you know, for something to catch the attention of the UN General Assembly, you know that this is not too far, you know, into our 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 believable future.
1: Right. So I guess now they're trying to make committees on doing risk analyses, right, for for any type of nanotechnology. You know, not I mean, not just nanorobots. I mean, pretty much any sort of nanotechnology has ethical implications for us.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, I think also I think I think this can be applied to medicine and science in general, is that something that is supposed to be so disruptive should be open access and, you know, should have open source methodology and hardware and software availability so that everyone in the general public can use it. And it's not something that's just disruptive, disruptive in a very narrow circle. You know, for example, Uber would not be disruptive. It could only, like, you know, be done in one city. It had to be like global. And I think for nano nanotechnology to reach that scale, again, it's all about scale. It, you know, it has to, you know, meet all of those goals of being open source and, you know, open access.
2: Which means a lot of funding from somebody. <laughs>
0: A lot. Yeah. So, so that's the other thing. So that's to address your, your question of why only private companies are running these trials. Well, you know, making these nano, nanomaterials is extremely expensive.
2: One of the articles that you, you referenced, that was one of the concerns was the, the cost, but also the reproducibility of creating these nanoparticles. And, you know, they, they assemble themselves, but how do you Know that they're all identical, and how do you know that they're functioning appropriately? I don't know if you can speak to that. Yeah. So one of the
0: reasons why you don't see a lot of nanomaterials in clinical medicine, for example, to be treated with for patients, is that pretty much any lab that does or studies nanotechnology has their formulation for their nanoparticle. So, for example, the nanoparticle that was developed in Dr. Hammond's lab that we use to treat brain tumors had multiple different components and what we aimed to do because we wanted our technology to be as translatable from the benchtop into the clinic was to use components that were already FDA approved in order to be able to get into a clinical trial we want to make sure that we we satisfy a lot of these regulations and so not only is it difficult to come up with a formulary that is using materials that that don't have unknown toxic effects. It also has to be reproducible, for example. So if every liposome that we make is supposed to be 100 nanometers, we have to consistently 100% of the time make liposomes that are 100 nanometers in diameter. And so the fabrication, that's one of the limitations. And when we scale it, well, when we scale up the fabrication to make enough liposomes to treat humans, you know that scale up manufacturing process is also you know not is not simple.
2: right It's the quality control
0: it's the quality control correct
2: so it's it's different than having a nanofilm on your glasses where they're just glasses, and if you mess you know a portion of it is not exactly correct versus doing this and and having it you know affect a human being so.
1: So, Fred, in terms of these limitations, what do you think we need to concentrate on in terms of improving, you know, the reliability of what we're producing? Where where do you think the resources need to go, where the research needs to go? What are your thoughts on that?
0: I think, you know, I was very fortunate to be able to do this research at a world-class institution such as MIT you know, where we have experts in the field, you know, and we have equipment that is first class and the types of quality control that we can do to really ensure that the materials that we are making are consistent and high quality, something like that has to be open to all labs, you know, all facilities, all companies. So there needs to be this collaborative, open source conversation that has to happen. And, you know, so in terms of societies coming together, you know, chemical engineering or bioengineering societies coming together and agreeing on, you know, what is the best way to make a a nanoparticle? And that's a very naive concept because, you know, uh, you know, everyone has their way, for example, baking a chocolate cake, there's like, you know, 20 different ways, everyone thinks their chocolate cake is the best chocolate cake, right? So, you know, someone needs the Martha Stewart nanoparticles so that, you know, we all get the perfect nanoparticle every time. And that's difficult. That's that's really difficult. If you think about the quality control it takes to even just make a regular drug that goes into treating humans, you know, the billions of dollars of research and development that drug companies put into developing a drug to market and the years you know so so there's a statistic that gets thrown around a lot in in pharmaceutical development is it usually takes about 10 to 15 years from a benchtop discovery in the lab to reach the clinic and tens of millions of dollars Mm -hmm. in research and then clinical trials and, and accrual to be able to bring something to market so you know, it takes really this global community to to come together of these brilliant minds and hardworking researchers to 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 make what we think is gonna be, I guess, the silver bullet for nanoparticles. But you know, that again is it's it's difficult.
1: I have two questions and you can or answer them in whatever order you like. But the first one was In terms of the open collaboration that you were mentioning, beyond when you were working at MIT, were there other universities that you guys were working with? Or did you find that the the research was, you know, a little bit more protected at each institution? And the second question I had was on funding. Like, you know, we did touch on biotech companies being the ones that have the money to, to run some of these trials. But even in terms of doing the research, who were the interested parties that are that are putting funding towards nanotechnology and seeing it as as sort of a future road for treatment you know so is it are pharma companies funding or are you or are there some other outside sources that are more interested
0: so in terms of academic institutional research there's several streams of funding that we can apply for so one is at the federal level you know, for example the National Institutes of Health in the US or the Canadian Institute of Health Research in Canada for example so there are federal sources of funding but those are usually limited in terms of of dollar amounts you know just because it is a federal amount of of public dollars that goes into it but there are also private sector funding that can be attained and that usually or can be through collaborations with big pharmaceutical companies you know if they have an interesting technology, then we can approach the big companies for, for the funding to develop as a collaboration. And hopefully with that collaboration we'll also have the resources of Big Pharma in terms of pushing it through a clinical trial if there are promising results. You know So this is not something that is usually talked about in the, in the public domain is how we get funding as researchers, but I think that's very it's something that's, that in this current climate needs to be addressed you know, and there are cuts in federal funding for research at multiple levels, not only in the U.S., but also in Canada. And so we need to be very inventive and resourceful as to where we get our funding.
2: I'm going to pivot just a little bit off that, but it seems like I read an article about its applications of this technology, just in orthopedics, and that funding would likely come from whatever it is that it- you know if it's the implant company that's going to be silver impregnating an implant for infection purposes or tissue regeneration. One of the most interesting, well, two things for me that have been interesting on the orthopedic side of things is the chondral repair, chondrocyte repair, which if there becomes an answer for that somewhere, is you know give yourself the give yourself the nobel prize and yeah. stop working forever because you've cured arthritis. <laughs> that's and, our next project. That's our <laughs> next project. But you know that's you know super fascinating for me and then in the realm of foot and ankle surgery also always infection issues with impregnating implants with the silver coating and things like that. So it seems like the funny would come from from wherever that you know if it's the implant company or the drug company or whatever but a part of that is also are the, any of these problems that are being addressed prevalent enough and mainstream enough where it's going to get the public's focus? So if you could use nanoparticles to cure COVID, you'd get a lot of funding. And that's my next question. Can you use nanoparticles to cure COVID <laughs> for a vaccine? Because, I mean, that's the type of interest that you might require and where you're going to get a lot of public interest and, and get that backing that you might need to push you over the top and getting a Martha Stewart of nanoparticle.
0: Recipes. You know, so that is a great question, Erica. And, you know, I would, I would say that yes, is the answer, again, in a very naive way of thinking. And, you know, I would use my example of our collaborative efforts at MIT with this early beta version nanoparticle that we showed some efficacy in a mouse to deliver therapies across the blood brain barrier. We have now successfully obtained a multi-million dollar grant that is part of the Cancer Research United Kingdom brain tumor consortium to collaborate with labs at CRUK and MIT. And we've now been able to been able to accrue enough funding to really push this technology that was developed in Dr. Hammond's lab to to an even higher level than than this liposome um, technology and so there is definitely general public interest and the applications uh, for nanotechnology is you know theoretically endless you know so delivery of antiviral therapies if we're going to talk about treatment for covid you know and other types of illnesses delivery of rna dna to alter the biology of cells you know that's the specialty of Dr. Langer's lab and other labs and Dr. Anderson's lab at MIT. You know, so it really is, there is definitely impetus.
1: Yeah, growing human tissue. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, regeneration and even in um, orthopedics and even in spine surgery, implants, you know, peak cages and these little small nanoscale materials that stack together to form this really strong structure that then can buttress the spine. I mean, that just blew my mind away when I was studying In my subspecialty training, and that definitely is there's there's enough interest both at the industry level, and also if we can cure degenerative disease, arthritic disease of any joint using you know nanoscale materials to replace bone, for example, or to regenerate cartilage.
1: That's a game changer. Uh, Like if we can regenerate cartilage, as 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 Eric was mentioning earlier, that's a game changer for us. But so you mentioned industry again, and and orthopedics, you know, we probably have access to, you know, more industry funding as well. Do you, you know, in terms of the cancer research and in terms of orthopedic research, do you think that there is an easier time for, you know, certain specialties to get the funding versus others?
0: You know, I think if we look at the the bulk of cancer, what is driving cancer care therapies, like innovative, disruptive technologies, it's really focused on the main, the, the four key bad players. So lung, breast, ovarian, prostate, melanoma, uh, you know, those are kind of like in terms of the statistics of what types of cancers kill people every year those are kind of like the top 5. So a lot of therapies, a lot of impetus is to develop novel and innovate innovative delivery nanoparticle delivery methods to deliver novel therapies to treat all of this all of these different types of cancers. And so I think in the future what we will see is a lot of this we we talk about targeted therapy a lot. You know, versus just non-specific chemotherapy, which is very toxic and just damages the DNA of cells. Now we know that we can target specific proteins in cells that will alter the cancer programming in a cancer cell. We have ways of attacking the immune system, programming the immune system to attack cancer cells. And there are, you know, we can, we can use a nanotechnology or a nanoparticle to increase the efficacy of delivering immune therapies or altering DNA programming in these cells to make them more effective at recognizing or treating cancer cells. So there, I think the theoretical, if you can think it, someone can do it, you know? And I think that's what is so interesting. You know, it's so interesting and so innovative about this entire field and why it's just so captivating. You just hear more and more about it in the mainstream you know, I think Hollywood only, you know, talks about things that are real, right?
1: They predicted it. They predicted it. <laughs> so Fred, out of everything we've talked about, what are you most excited about in nanotechnology? Is there something that you think is coming that that you're most excited
0: about? Yeah, so I mean, as, as a neurosurgeon, we are seeing technology advance our field. You know, so the way that we actually take out a brain tumor... Using uh, techniques have not, you know, classic surgical techniques have not changed really over the decades. I mean, what has changed really is the use of disruptive technology for us to better visualize the brain tumor and allow us to do intraoperative imaging using, for example, there's a nanotechnology-based tumor paint that was developed again by a colleague at MIT and uh, investigator over in Seattle, Dr. Jim Olson, called uh a tumor paint that can actually paint tumor cells in the brain. And this is a technology that uses a scorpion toxin as one of those proteins that, that can stick onto that can stick onto receptors that are, are expressed on, on brain tumors. So in the in the operating room, you can use these microscopes that can see this fluorescence in the tumor surgery. And what the naked eye cannot see, this tumor paint can then paint. These little small microscopic cells that we can then take and remove and ensure that we can get a better resection. So that's something that is really exciting. And, you know, the use of laser technology, so femto laser technology to be able to hone in using image guidance, the tumors or areas of the brain that the surgeon cannot access deep in the brain where these tumors are, there's a possibility of getting this technology and treatment deep into the brain. To then remove those tumor cells or kill those tumor cells. So that is, you know, I think if we think about the limitations that we have as surgeons, you know, as great as we think we are, you know, it's, it's it's the use of this innovative disruptive technology that will really be a game changer in improving our surgical outcomes and then improving the health and the well-being, the survival of the general public. So that's what's really exciting me these days to to really, you know, keep a keep keep my finger on the pulse in terms of what's going on in the field of of nanotechnology for not only neurosurgery, but health in general.
1: Anything that scares you about nanotechnology? We were just talking about some of the things that scare us.
0: I think there is still a big gap between when we can really say, are nanobots going to make us obsolete? You know, are they going to take over the world and, and we will no longer need surgeons? And that's a similar discussion that that can be had with artificial intelligence will it you know replace all of us in terms of you know are we going to become irrelevant and i think there is still a big there's a lot of ground to cover you know not only from a like you said erica quality control perspective to make sure that this technology is safe to treat to use to treat human beings and is this technology reproducible 100 of the time to induce an effect that is you know expected versus are there going to be side effects that we can't control so what are the ethical ramifications of putting these foreign materials into humans and what especially if we're going to be delivering therapies that will alter dna or gene expression you know we have to think about the ethical ramifications of using this technology so ongoing conversations need to be had in a very kind of multidisciplinary type of setting and i think with that we can safely And hopefully, in a regulated manner, improve our field, you know, to affect change.
2: It was very well said.
1: (laughs) I don't have anything to add Uh, uh, Exactly. So do you have any closing thoughts for us? Well, I think
0: this is a great platform, Rosie. And I really applaud you for for inviting me on The Medical Matrix. And I would say, please, I'm going to make a plug again for nanomedicine and nanotechnology as being the wave of the future in terms of disruption. Of new therapies or many different fields of healthcare, and you know, I'm I'm really excited at uh, what my colleagues and other researchers around the world are really going to come up with in the future.
2: He wants to drain the swamp of old medicine. <laughs> yes, exactly.
1: <laughs> <laughs> we're going to employ
0: the nanobots no, gonna... to drain the swamp. <laughs>
1: that's right. That's right.
0: Fred Lam for president. Fred yeah. Lamb for, for president. <laughs>
2: Awesome. Listen, okay. <laughs> I'm not going to make this political, but you already have my vote.
1: Thanks, Fred.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: This show is being produced by StudioPod. And for more information, go to studiopodsf.com.